Welcome to Journey Church Tucson Sermon Podcast. We are an evangelical free church seeking to honor God by making disciples that learn about, love like, and live like Jesus. Uh, well, we are back in our Second Peter series again this morning, so if you have your Bibles, you can open them to Second Peter chapter 2. Uh, if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, it's about... 90% towards the back. If you hit the book of Revelation, you've gone too far. If you hit the book of Maps, you're way, way too far. Uh, so you want to double back. You're looking for a book that has two and then Peter. So Second Peter, we're going to be in chapter two, and there's a couple of things I want to do this morning. I want to uh, first deal with an apologetics issue that comes up in the book of Second Peter. Uh, it's pretty prevalent in our passage. Uh, then I want to talk about what we see in our particular text, verses 10 through 16 in front of us. Uh, and I think we're going to see two primary things there. We're going to see the abhorrent behavior of false teachers. And we're going to see the ironic irrationality of false teachers in this text. And then I want to close just briefly considering uh, a couple of ways in which we can protect our own hearts from false teaching. So there are three things, apologetic, and then in the text, and then how can we guard ourselves from false teaching this morning? So uh, before we get into that, let's again pray, asking uh, for the, Lord's uh, the Lord to have his hand on this morning. Father in heaven, we pray that your kingdom come, as we have sung. Uh, it is well with our soul at the end, but we also sang at the beginning, uh, that we should not drop an anchor, but continue to press on towards the golden shores, uh, towards what your kingdom is. And so, Lord, we pray for that coming. Uh, I pray for the prominence of your word this morning, not just in this church, but in any church with its doors open this morning. I pray that your word be proclaimed there, uh, that your gospel may be made clear there. Uh, and so, Lord, we ask that, uh, and we pray as well that the meditations of our hearts, that the uh, that the words of my mouth might be clear to you this morning. And I pray that uh, those of us gathered here this morning might be edified uh, by this text and by what it has for us. So we pray these things in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So like I said, starting with a little bit of apologetic lessons, Second uh, Peter, as Pastor Jim has pointed out a couple of times, was one in the early church was one of the most hotly debated texts as they were trying to figure out the canon, the, the list of books or letters, uh, writings that we have in our New Testament. They were trying to affirm what is it that we think God has given the church in inspired and inerrant scripture. And Second Peter was one of the books they debated most heavily, and that's because it has some weird things in it, uh, which we talked about last week with angels, but it's also because it has a remarkable overlap with the book of Jude. Now, the book of Jude is the second-to-last book in the Bible. It's written by uh, Jesus's younger brother, maybe half-brother, we're not entirely sure. Uh, Joseph and Mary could have had kids after, uh, after Jesus, or, well, there's lots of different ways in which it could be connected. Anyway, Jude, Jesus' brother, uh, and he pens this letter, which begins, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. So Jude sets out, and he 
wants to write a theological treatise. He wants to write something like the book of Romans, where you're unpacking the grandeur of doctrine in Christianity, except for when he surveys the cultural scene of the church, he says, well, I wanted to write about that, but I actually have to write about this other thing. I have to write to you about the necessity for contending for the faith, for defending the truth. I have to write, instead of theology, I have to write apologetics. And one of the reasons that he draws that out is because of false teachers. He is concerned as false teachers are coming into the church. And so what we then see is one of the reasons for the overlap between 2 Peter and Jude is they're actually addressing the same problem. False teachers are arising. False teachers are coming up. And they feel a need to address this. Now, it's actually deeper in terms of the overlap than that. You know, there's lots of texts in the scriptures which seem to have an overlap in terms of their purpose or their goal or their contents. Take, for example, the Gospels have a, quite a lot of overlap, but there was very little debate about which Gospels should go into the New Testament. Uh, one commentator summarized his findings as he looked at these two letters saying this. What we see in each such comparison, comparison of the English text and then he makes a note, the verbal similarities would be more striking in the Greek text. But what we see is the same topics are covered in largely the same order, often using the same or almost the same words. This combination of virtually identical order with pieces of similar and at times identical wording is so striking. So what that commentator said is one of the reasons why people doubt, doubted 2 Peter is because 2 Peter and Jude cover the same topics or almost the same topics in the same or almost the same order using the same or almost the same words. And so I used to teach high school for a little while. I've been a university professor. If somebody told me, hey, you have two papers, they cover the same topics in the same order using the same words, there's a word I have for that. It's called plagiarism. Uh, so we have to kind of negotiate what is taking place here with Jude and Peter because some people will take these similarities and they will go, you see, the Bible not only says crazy things, but two guys are plagiarizing each other. How can you even trust it? How can you know that Second Peter wrote Second Peter when so much of it he's just taking straight from Jude? Well, I think there's a few things, three that I want to communicate this morning that we can say about this overlap. First of all, I want to say historically, we don't actually know what happened in between Jude and the writing of 2 Peter. The historical record does not cover that for us. It doesn't reveal the relationship between Peter and Jude and how they would have produced two remarkably similar letters. That being said, the early church, which because of its chronological closeness to the recording of these letters probably would have had greater insight than we do today in spite of all of our technological advances, all of our historical studies, all of our archaeological discoveries. They would have had more uh, understanding of what was taking place between these two. And when it comes to them, they record unanimous support and acceptance of both letters. And so there's no major school in the early church that's saying, we can take Jude but leave 2 Peter, we can take 2 Peter but leave Jude. So I want to communicate that though we don't know what happened, those who do, those who did, accepted both. The second thing I want to say about this is that there are many theories of how this overlap came about, 
and almost all of them are very plausible. So we actually have little reason to doubt what took place. You know, if I was a betting man, what I would do is I would bet on a combination of two particular theories. You see, because when you look at a letter and it has this much overlap, there's only so many options that can come up. Jude wrote, and then Peter used Jude. Peter wrote, and then Jude used Peter. Or Jude and Peter wrote separately, but based off of a similar tradition, based off of something that they both witnessed, observed, or heard. So if I had to, uh, if I had to place money on what I think happened, I think the evidence probably points to there's a similar conversation or a, the same conversation that they were both a part of. Maybe it's connected to uh, the brother of Jesus, James. He would have been the older brother of Jude. And in Acts 15, it actually records that Peter and James would have been together making decisions about the early church. So maybe the three of them have a conversation, and then that conversation, on the basis of it, Jude and Peter both record letters. That being said, I think Jude wrote first, and then Peter took some of Jude's material and edited it a little bit different for a slightly different cultural context. So if I had to place a bet, that's what I would do. I would put it there. And the third thing I want to communicate is that because the theories are so plausible, I find no reason to doubt 2 Peter or any other text of Scripture on the basis of the overlap between Jude and, Pe and 2 Peter. And I want to I say this about that. One of the reasons why I don't struggle with doubt when it comes to these things is because I know why I trust the Bible. Here's my question for you, though. Do you know why you trust the Bible? You see, I can't, I can't determine that for you. It has to be something that you understand. We are all called to not only know what we believe, the doctrines which Jim has been leading us through these last couple of weeks and which we'll continue to look at, not only what we believe, but we have to know why we believe it. If you don't know the why, your foundation can be stripped out from underneath you by, the, by just historical happenstance. Well, did you know these two letters cover the same context? That can destabilize you if you don't understand why you believe what you say you believe. For me in particular, uh, as we're getting to know each other since I am new here, uh, for me in particular, one of the reasons why I believe in the scriptures is because I came to them through an investigation uh, of trying to figure out what is true. What can I cling on to? I had a little bit of a, a chaotic childhood. Um, I had, well, I think every, I was about to say I had a chaotic adolescence, but I think that's like probably part of the definition of adolescence is that it's chaotic. So chaotic childhood, and then in adolescence, uh, I had been raised in a quasi-Christian home, and I came to the scriptures and was wondering at some point, can I, can I really trust these? Can I bank my life on these teachings, on the words here? And so I undertook an investigation, which, interestingly enough, required me to read the Bible. Uh, we often will take in things and start to believe them without actually reading them. I don't know how many of you, like me, have probably just believed a headline in a news story without actually reading the entire article. Uh, well, I actually had to read the Bible to figure out, can I found and base my life on this book? And as I flipped through the Bible's pages, as I read its, its narratives and its poetry and its wisdom, what I found in the scriptures was a sort of irreducible reality that I could not get past. I saw in the Psalms and in the books of Ecclesiastes, I saw the world as I experienced it. 
I didn't have words for it yet, but as I, as I read David crying out, oh God, where are you? I thought, I feel that. And then as I turned the page and he said, you're so close, I need face. I thought, I feel that too. <laughs> on different pages, on different days, in different moments. And I realized this book describes the world as I encounter it. And then it dawned on me that as I read about the characters and I read the narratives, I found in them people who were deeper than anything else I had read in a book. The greatest works of literature have a depth of character development, and yet they are mostly basing how they understand character development off of this book. And I realized the only way you understand things like the story of Abraham and the story of Isaac and Jacob and Moses and David and Solomon is if you think those people are actually real. Because made up people don't act like that, they don't think like that, they don't have that sort of texture to their lives. And so I encountered in the scriptures what seemed to me to be different than anything else I had ever read, I had ever consumed, I had ever watched, or I had ever heard. I didn't have words until much later when I encountered the writings of C.S. Lewis, of G.K. Chesterton, of Francis Schaeffer, even pushing back further into history to Augustine. I didn't have words until I met their writings to understand what I was seeing was the greatest myth on which all other stories are based being shown to be true. And then as I studied, I found that this story not only felt true, this story not only had the, the texture and depth of truth, but this story is, his, is supported historically, it's supported archaeologically, it's supported philosophically, it holds together in an internal coherence that is hard to explain or understand. I mean, modern authors like J.K. Rowling they have to rewrite entire portions of their work just to get their, if they've written multiple books, just to get them all to kind of line up and make sense together. And yet, many authors over many years from different historical contexts, speaking different languages, from different backgrounds, could inscribe words that hang together without any editing. Nobody needed to go back and change the book of Deuteronomy in order to make the book of Matthew make sense. Nobody needs to go back and change David's Psalms in order so that you could see them lived out in Jesus. They just described what they saw, what the Spirit inspired them to, and it holds together. I could go on ad nauseum about why I believe the Scriptures why I've based my life here on this book, and why when, when I come up against something that confuses me, that is hard for me, that causes me to struggle, where I return to is right here. But that is not really why we're here this morning. I display why I came to believe in order to ask you, why do you believe? We need to know what we believe and why we believe it in order to be sure that we can stand on a firm foundation. How do you sing it is well with my soul when you know no matter what comes, I can stand on a firm foundation. All that said, we have not actually even read our text for this morning. So we're going we're gonna to stop there with the apologetics on the scripture and we are going to move into 2 Peter.
So if you have your Bibles, open them to 2 Peter chapter 2. Uh, This is old hat for some of you who have been here with us throughout the series, but I just want to review quickly what's going on in 2 Peter. 2 Peter is a letter of warning written to the churches, warning about false teachers rising up. If I had to summarize the thesis of 2 Peter, I would say Peter is trying to explain to you that your theology determines your ethics, that what you believe will determine how you live. Now, that being said, there are several categories of theology. So it's important to uh, just understand or be aware of these. So there is theology proper, which is the study of God as Father and as Trinity. There is bibliology, which is the study of Scripture. There is anthropology and hamartiology, which is the study of man and sin. There is Christology and soteriology, which is the study of Christ and salvation. Pneumatology is the study of the Holy Spirit. Ecclesiology is the study of the church, both local and universal. And eschatology is the study of last things, meaning the culmination of all of God's plan, the the thing which God is moving all of this life, all of this project toward. That's what we talk about when we talk about eschatology. And if you read 2 Peter closely, what you'll see is that Peter, when he's thinking about the particular false teachers rising in the church, he's saying their issue arises fundamentally in eschatology. The false teachings they're coming with are eschatological. So we could sharpen the thesis a little bit further and we could say your eschatology, what you believe about where this whole project we call life is going by God's will, what you believe about that will shape and determine your ethics. So 1 Peter then begins by explaining to us the life that we ought to lead. The life we ought to lead if we have a properly ordered eschatology. And so Peter unpacks what it means to be, uh, to be a, live a godly life. And actually, let's pause there for one second because it's possible um, that we might have a little bit of confusion about eschatology. So let me say this. There is a lot of debate about what takes place in the field of eschatology. There's a wide range of opinions about when things are supposed to happen, about how things are supposed to happen, what order they're supposed to happen in. A biblical eschatology requires three particular beliefs. Only three. Everything else we can discuss, we can open up our Bibles and we can debate, we can take it apart, we can analyze. But there are three things which are non-negotiable when it comes to eschatology. Those three things are, number one, there is an end time. You have to believe that this whole thing we call life, God is bringing and taking somewhere, and that when it hits, there is an end. We can debate about what takes place around that, but there is an end. That's belief number one. Non-negotiable belief number two is that Jesus comes back. If Jesus doesn't come back, I don't know what we're doing, but non-negotiable belief number two is he comes back, and non-negotiable belief number three When he comes back, he wins, and it's not very close. Those are the three basic beliefs. If you've got those down, you're operating within the framework of a biblical eschatology, okay? So there is an end. Jesus comes back. When he comes back, he wins. That's what you need. So Peter says, if you believe those three things, then here's how you should live. And we spend a number of sermons unpacking the godly life. He describes the the way, the chain of virtues and things like that the sort of knowledge. And then he goes on into 2 Peter chapter 2, and he says, 
there are people who have a non-godly, non-orthodox, inaccurate eschatology, and they lead people astray. And so he introduces us to the notion of these false teachers, and he contrasts them with the true Christian in two ways. He says the true Christian is concerned with true doctrine. False teachers are concerned with developing destructive heresies. So contrasted, contrast number one. And then true Christians want to live, live, live godly lives on the basis of this true doctrine. The false teachers will live lives of sensuality on the basis of their false doctrine. And he anticipates a question we all have bubbling up in our mind of why would God allow false teachers and what ultimately is going to happen to these false teachers. And so he hits pause on his argument and he says, okay, real quick, just so you know, they're all going to be judged because God judged the angels, God judged uh, uh, the flood generation, and God judged Sodom and Gomorrah. So before you hit chapter 20 of a 1,189 chapter book, God judges three times. So don't worry, they will be judged. And then he goes, unpause, let's go back to talking about these false teachers. And that's where we pick up this morning. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 10 through 16, where Peter writes, especially, talking about those who will be judged, especially those who indulge in the lust of the defiling passions and despise authority. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Whereas angels, though greater in might and in power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught, destroyed, blaspheme about matters which they are ignorant, they will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with a human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. For those of you unfamiliar with the Old Testament, you're probably like, speechless donkey, what happened? We will get there. We will get there. First things first, though. Peter wants to direct us towards the character of the false teachers, and he says their character can be, can be understood under two headings. They indulge in defiling passions, and they despise authority. And then he says after that, they are bold and willful, they blaspheme the holy ones, and they blaspheme about matters which they are ignorant. We could categorize these under despising authority, signs that they despise authority. And then he says, they revel in the daytime, they revel in the deception while feasting with you, whose eyes are full of adultery, who are insatiable for sin, whose hearts are trained in greed. You could categorize those under defiling passions. I want to take some time and unpack each of those a little bit, but first thing I want to point out is how this contrasts with what, sec with what Second Peter says about how we, the true Christians, are supposed to live. He says this in First Peter 5, uh, 1 Peter 1, 5 through, or 2 Peter 1, 5 through 7. 
For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, virtue with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. In other words, he's setting out how we should live, how the false teachers should live, and he's saying you should know better than to follow them. Because when you look at them, you see people who cannot, by the way they live, cannot by any means believe what is written here. They clearly do not understand or they do not believe, thus you ought not to follow them. All you have to do is look at the way they're living. Now we want to be careful with that. We want to understand grace and repentance and mercy. Yes and amen to all of those. But let us keep in mind, these are not new Christians or wayward Christians, these are false teachers. They are trying to say that they ought to have authority, that they ought to guide the church, that they ought to give direction, that they ought to be the ones in charge of developing doctrine and directing God's people. And yet this is how they live. And remember, he says, it's not something they're hiding, they do it in front of you. So you should simply be able to see and understand. These ones cannot believe in my Lord because of the way they live. Now, we just actually finished a membership class here, and so I want to make a couple of comments uh, in terms of, of authority. Uh, I have been hired. I am new. Hi. Uh, my name's Tyler. I'm new here. I have been given a sort of position of authority. That sort of position, the sort of there, is because really I have authority on the basis of how much you trust Jim and the elders. Because we're all still getting to know each other. But one of the things, one of the reasons why I am here amongst you is not simply because I'm good at public speaking or because I have degrees from theological institutions. I am here among you so that you can see how I live. You can watch the way I love my wife. You can watch the way I try and raise my kids. You can watch the way I try and befriend those who God has providentially drawn near me. You can look at that and you can assess, does this man live the way this book describes? And what I don't mean is that I live perfectly, because I don't. I live repentantly. That is what we are looking for. And so you can look at that and say, does this man's life look like how the Bible describes someone following Jesus, which is making every effort to grow in godliness and repentance. Repentance both when self-righteousness consumes his heart and repentance when he fails in his pursuit of godliness. You see, one of the things that I had on my checklist of things I needed in a church which I was pursuing was I wanted a church that put a large emphasis on us gathering together. And it's for this particular reason. And I, I say this, by the way, not just to our members here who have an opportunity to look at the elders, to look at the pastors, and to assess how we live. But I say this to those of you here who might be visitors, or you might be checking out the Journey Church. Uh, because if you're trying to decide on a particular church, I want to tell you, look for a church that has systems and structures that make sure pastors get put in front of you in your lives. Do not look for a church that has systems and structures which separate you from the pastor so you have no ability to see how he lives. 
The reason is, my doctrine will be proved in my life. So if you can see me pushing my shopping cart through Whole Foods as my child has a mental breakdown because I did not let him get cookies, and you see how I respond to that, you can look and assess that by scripture. But the easiest way to keep you from knowing my true theology and my true character is to separate myself from you, which is far too easy in our world where technology and various media can separate us from one another. So if you're visiting here, I would ask you, assess the churches you look at by that. Are the pastors with people? Another way to describe this is pastors are Pastors are called shepherds, and the church is described as a flock of sheep. Do the pastors smell like sheep? If that helps you remember, take it, use it. You see, when we look at scripture and we think about authority, authority is a good thing. Second Samuel says this, 2 Samuel 23, 3-4, The God of Israel has spoken, the rock of Israel has said to me, When one rules justly over men ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light. Like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes the grass to sprout from the earth. Godly authority is like the dawning of a new sun. Godly authority is like, and I'm sure you all far better than I do since you have all been in Arizona much longer than I have, understand the beauty of a fresh rain on a dry land. Godly authority is like that. It causes the flourishing of all that is underneath it. So that is what God said through Samuel. And by the way, I want to point this out. When it comes to submitting to godly authority, And again, we just had our membership class, so several of you have probably filled out applications, uh, and you're thinking about it. Here's one thing I want you to think about when it comes to submitting to pastors and elders. Never submit to a spiritual authority that is not joyfully submitted to divine authority and godly human authority. Hopefully, I don't have to explain why you never submit to a spiritual authority that is submitted to divine authority, but never submit to authority that is, or a spiritual authority that is not submitted to godly human authority, because if it does not submit to godly human authority, it will not be long till it does not submit to divine authority. If we want to run the show, we will walk away from God at the first chance we get. And the word joyful is very important too, because if you are not joyfully submitted to godly human authority, all it sounds like to me that's happening is that person is biding his time for when he's in charge. If you want to know if you can trust an institution long term, a spiritual institution, look at the young leaders. Do they seem joyfully submitted to the older leaders? I am well aware that I'm probably the youngest person at an elders meeting when I say that, by the way. And let me... uh, I had it pointed out by one of our greeters who told me, Joyce, hi, wherever you sat, uh, who told me she loves it when she sees uh, younger people walking in, and I noticed a few young women walk in. So let me say this for any of you who are uh, potentially single women looking for or interested in at some point a future romantic relationship. The same thing is true for you. 
do not submit to a man who is not submitted to divine, joyfully submitted to divine and godly human authority. If a guy asks you out on a date, single women, and you don't, you, if you should ask yourself the question, is he submitted to divine and godly human authority? And your answer to whether or not you go out on a date with him should probably be very similar to the answer to that question. If you don't know, the answer should be I don't know. If the answer is no, the answer should be no. Make sense? I am not saying that because I'm some sort of legalist. I am saying that for your good. Only those, only submit to authorities, spiritual authorities, that are joyfully submitted to divine authority and godly human authority. So Peter points out these people, they despise authority. They are not submitted to either divine authority or godly human authority. And he says, bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. And he goes on, blaspheming about matters which they are ignorant. Blasphemy is essentially anything that goes against or challenges the very nature and character of God. Uh, it says that God is someone he is not, or it takes upon oneself God's own authority. So you can blaspheme by cursing God, you can blaspheme by destroying the image of God in man, you can blaspheme by heresy. What is taking place in this passage, I think, is another kind of blasphemy, which is blaspheming by grabbing authority that is reserved for God. You see, we only have authority over that which God has given us to steward. And in this text, it seems to me what's taking place, because it is kind of confusing, uh, is that these false teachers are saying or casting judgments, pronouncing judgments about angels. It is not clear whether these angels are godly angels, still on God's team, or if they're the fallen angels. What is clear is that they have not been given the authority to say what they are saying. Not only that, to make matters worse, they don't even understand. They are ignorant, which is why Peter says, not even the angels who, if you're talking about angels, who knows angels better than angels? So not only... The, not even the angels will say that, but you don't know much about angels, and yet you are casting judgment upon them. And saying that is blasphemy because that is the prerogative of God and God alone. He has not given that to us. And then he goes on and he says, in terms of how they live, he says, they revel in the daytime. In fact, they revel in deceptions while they feast with you. In other words, they are so twisted in their morality, in their hearts, that they don't even wait until night when they can do things under the cover of darkness. They do it at day. Which, by the way, if you start doing debauched things during the day, you just have more time to do them. So he's saying they don't even hide it, and they do it for much longer. He says you can actually see them. They do this in front of you. When he talks about feasting, he's probably referring to the eucharismatic feast, the, the uh, communion or the Lord's Supper feast. He's saying these guys get drunk at the Lord's table. They have come to reflect on the gift of Christ on the cross for our salvation, for our sins to be paid for, and they're getting hammered. He's saying they revel in it, and when you, when you challenge them on it, 
they throw it back at you and they say, I am free to do this. And they use the doctrine of Christian freedom. One commentator describes what he sees happening here and he says, they could represent their message as updating Christianity, which they dispense with an old-fashioned morality. No, 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 you have the wrong idea. That's all passe, that's all old-fashioned. We've moved past that now. Updated morality. And they have brought Christianity into line with the moral standards of their society. No, 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 you're on the wrong side of history. Society is now here. We need to bring the church here. That is what he's saying they're doing. Their watchword is freedom, also implied freedom from the fear of judgment. And so brought, they have brought their eschatological skepticism into play in the interest of moral permissiveness. So they have, they have approached their theology, their eschatology, and they have a twisted version of it. Jesus is not coming back. There is no final judgment. And therefore their ethics is live however you want. Guys, this is the love wins theology of our day. The theology that assumes, I know what love is. Rather than looking to the scriptures to define love, I know what love is. And love is good. And I love this particular thing. Therefore, my love towards it is good. Therefore, we need to change Christian theology to match my love for that thing. Therefore, we need to change Christian ethics and behavior in order to match my love for that thing. There are so many problems with that. How do you know what love is if you do not let the God who is love himself define love for you? How do you know that love in and of itself is a good thing? Love is actually neutral. The important thing about love is its object. What you love is far more morally and ethically important than that you love. What that means then is that we need to be very, very careful about what we attach our hearts to. What we attach our hearts to is fundamentally allows inroads in our hearts to false doctrine and false teaching. He goes on and he says, their eyes are full of adultery and they are insatiable for sin. This uh, makes total sense, actually, if you think about it, because the Westminster Confession of Faith says, what is the chief end of man? What was man made for? What is God's purpose for man? And the Westminster Confession answers that question, and it says, man's purpose is to glorify God and enjoy him forever and ever. You see, but God is infinite. He has no depths that you can plumb. He has no end which you can finally close the book on theology. I've understood everything. I have read this book. You can't do that with God. Therefore, what that implies is that we have been made to glorify and enjoy something that is infinite, something that never ends, something which we cannot get to the bottom of. In other words, our desires are made to never be satiated. They are made to never be satisfied because they are made to be directed towards an infinite source. All the things in this life Everything which tries to lure our hearts away from God, that cannot satisfy finally, because it is not an infinite source. 
The best meal you eat, you will be hungry later on. The best drink you have, you will be thirsty at another point. The best, most mind-blowing sex you could ever have, you will have desire again. We were made for something more. These ones, because they pursue that which has an end, never find their desires fully quenched. And so they have an insatiable desire for sin. They keep on coming back again and again and again to it because the source is finite and you were made for the infinite. Their hearts are trained for greed. Not only are they greedy, but they're like the Navy SEALs of greed. I know there's an Air Force base nearby. I would use an Air Force reference, but I just don't know one. My dad was in the Navy. They are the Navy SEALs of greed. They have trained for greed. And so Peter goes on and he describes them like they are following in the way of Balaam, the son of Beor. Long story short, you can read this for yourself. It's in Numbers 22 through 24, and then as well in 25 and 31. Uh, But Balaam is a prophet. He has a relationship with God, and yet a pagan king pays him to curse the Israelites as they approach the promised land. And as they approach, God speaks to Balaam and he says, you cannot curse them. They are my people. And so Balaam doesn't curse them. And then they up the ante and they try and pay him even more so that he curses them. So he tries again and God says, no, you cannot curse them. So he keeps on coming back. One time God even allows his own donkey, which he is riding on, that's the speechless donkey part. One time he even allows the donkey to use words to explain to Balaam the ridiculousness of what he is doing which is so fascinating of an example because Second Peter is talking about people who fundamentally said, I have a higher source of knowledge than all of you, therefore you should follow me. And Peter says, they do not have any higher source of knowledge. They are irrational animals. The highest source of knowledge is right here. It is God's word delivered to you, inspired and inerrant. These guys are so backwards in terms of what they think is knowledge that if God sent a talking donkey to them they would not get it it would only restrain them for a moment but they like Balaam would go on to find some workaround in order to do what God said not to do as I've thought about all of these things uh, where I have come to is thinking in terms of We need to be people who do not just own Bibles, but are owned by the Bible. We need to be people who are grounded here, such that we can say, I have a firm foundation on which to stand. I have access to divine knowledge through the divine word, such that I can know true knowledge and wisdom. Like I said before, we actually have inroads into our hearts for false teachings to get in. And so what we need to do is hold the Bible up to ourselves like a mirror to examine ourselves for those inroads. Where are you weak for false teaching to come in? Now, I don't know you guys very well. Like I said, I'm new here, but I know that there's five that I have seen in my own personal life at different points. Those five are... Freedom, ambition, connection, belonging, and character. Depth of character. Freedom, I've always wanted to be free. Ambition, there's things I want to accomplish. 
connection. I want to feel like somebody knows me and I know them in a way that is not true of anybody else in the world. Belonging, I want to feel like I have a place where I have a place I come to and I go, these are my people. And depth of character, I, I want to, this sounds a little bit shallow, but I want to seem interesting. And every single one of those provides an inroad for false teaching to get into my heart and distort the way I live. Now, here's how you guard yourself from those inroads, whatever they are for your life, is you realize those inroads are there because of who you were made to be, and thus they are not primarily supposed to function as inroads for false teaching. They're primarily supposed to function as inroads for the gospel. And so we... we harden ourselves and fortify ourselves against false teaching by preaching the gospel to ourselves using those things. I have always wanted to be free. I don't like a lot of stuff because it feels like it ties me down. And yet the gospel, here's what it tells me about my freedom. My freedom is fundamentally a result of being made by God for freedom but freedom within the boundaries that he sets, not because he likes to give laws, not because he likes to be restrictive, but because he knows how he made me. And so to operate within the playing field, which he made me to operate in, actually lets me be as free as I want to be and even further. Any talented musician can tell you that they had to constrain themselves in their time to practice their instrument in order to have the freedom to play whatever they wanted. Any athlete will tell you they had to lock themselves in a workout room with a playbook or whatever the sport is in order to get better so that they could have the freedom to do whatever they wanted on the football field. The constraints of what we are doing of who we are made to be, open us up for more freedom. And so when I preach that to myself, that I am not free when it's down to my self-righteousness, I am not free when it's down to my own effort, I am not free when I let go of all rules and just live how I want, I am free when I come to the Savior who has lived how God desired him to live, and I go, I want to emulate you, but I know I'm going to fall short, so I need you to take my sin upon your shoulders. And when he says back, come to me, ye who are weary and heavy laden, and you will find rest for your souls, because that is what you were made for. And that's where true freedom is. True freedom is when you can sigh in the rest of having everything you need to do to be justified before God accomplished for you. Amen, guys? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for who you have created us to be, that you have created us to be free, that you have created us to have ambitions, you have created us in all of these ways. Ultimately, though, you have created us for yourself. And so, Lord, we thank you for that. We ask that you remind us that we are not our own, but that we belong, body and soul, to you, our creator, our sustainer, and our savior. Amen. Thank you for listening to Journey Church Tucson Sermon Podcast. We'd love to have you join us in person on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. You can find out more about us at journeyefc.org.